This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Cast episode 287 for Monday, December 31st, 2012, E equals MC squared. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. And we're back from our awesome cruise. Uh, we are. In the Caribbean uh, with, uh, I guess, about 90 of our Astronomy Cast friends. And that was super it, fun. Yes. And, and we are going to be repeating this. Look forward yes. for news about Hawaii in January 2014. Uh, I'm working on putting together a website for that. All the photos from this year will go up and information on next year will follow. Yeah, it was a really wonderful experience. I got to say, I'm mean, a big thanks to the folks who did the end of the world cruise for inviting us on board and 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 letting us participate. We had a great time, uh, you know, both with being able to sort of see the ruins and do the excursions, but also just to be able to spend time with with the Astronomy Cast fans. It was great. We, you put together a really busy schedule where um, we were recording shows almost every night. Uh, we were or doing events every night, meet and greet party, doing shows. We did stargazing every night out on the back of the boat we uh we did uh, lunches and dinners with the fans we were able to get a chance to to actually hang out with almost everybody who who came and and have uh sort of personal dinner and, and lunch with them so it was it was great it was great to get to know everybody and great to to of course to hang out with uh with you and you know the families got together uh it was a really fantastic time and i was uh i, I can't wait to do that again and and I have to send out props to to Victoria, Eric, uh, and Phoenix for for all of their help the day we went to Coba because you abandoned us and they helped us bring up the rear and bring up the front. Yeah, yeah, um, abandoned you. I I didn't want to send my children into that nightmare gale force storm. But anyway, um, you you made the right choice. Yeah, your, I know, your children. I know. Yeah, it, yeah. It, we had the ferry ride, ride right. of evil that yeah. you can read about in the in the future on my blog. Yeah, we've got some great pictures. And so like you said, you know, we're gonna, you know, it was a great chance to experiment. And it was great to hang out with everybody. The The downside was, it wasn't the best platform for doing astronomy related stuff, because the, the boat moves at night, and then it stops during the day, you're carrying around horrible light pollution, the boat is moving, so you can't set up telescopes. Uh, so it was, you know, it wasn't a great place for the, the kind of science that we want to do. So, and that's why I think we're going to look for some place that's, you know, on land that's near nice observatories and, and we'll, we'll figure that out. So anyway, more news coming. Um, but just wanted to give everyone a wrap up, but it was a fantastic time. Uh, okay, well, cool. Well, let's get rolling then. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thelight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So it's mind-bending to think about this, but the light in your house and the house itself are really the same thing. 
Matter and energy are interchangeable. This was the amazing revelation made by Albert Einstein with his famous formula, E equals mc squared. This is the process that the sun uses to turn hydrogen into radiation through fusion and the terrible danger from nuclear weapons. So I, I think I can remember that being you know, when I sort of finally wrapped my head around this, and we did it in um, physics class in like grade 11, I think, grade 10, you know, when we were given that formula and now we understood what that formula was about, and we actually had to calculate, you know, here's your energy, how much mass, you know, will, can you make, here's your mass, how much energy can you release, that they're just, that they're interchangeable. That was, for yeah. me, it really felt like I looked the whole world in a different way because you're so used to these things being two different things. And now they're and now they're not. So, so can you kind of go back to this just really amazing? Uh, well, actually, first let's start with the equation itself and and sort of talk about like what is this equation saying and what is it and what is it talking about? Well, at, at the most fundamental level, what it's saying is if you take something, it has a certain amount of material that makes it up, and that material can get transformed into energy, but the thing as a whole has a sum of energy and mass that is is a constant. So you have the energy of an object which is tied up in its rest mass and its kinetic motion, and then you have have the fact that if it's moving, its its matter amount doesn't change. Its matter is dictated by how many electrons, how many protons does it have, but its momentum, its ability to act like mass changes. And and this is a really confusing concept, but the best way to think about it is if you have two observers, both looking at the same event, they need to see the same thing. And since time changes based on how fast you're moving, if I'm watching a train moving at close to the speed of light, it would be very hard for me to watch it. But ignoring that, I would see time for the people on that train slowly approach a stop this means that if someone were to drop a really nice pot it would appear to very slowly drift towards the bottom of that very quickly moving train now a very slow moving pot should just sort of gently touch the ground but the reality is if it weighs enough when it touches the ground there'll be no gentle about it and will shatter into a million pieces so it's it's equivalent mass, its relativistic mass, has to increase in order for it to shatter when it hits the ground in this, I perceive time moving very slowly for the folks on this fast moving train. Now, at the same time, to the people on the train, it's a normal pot, you drop it, the sucker moves fast, the thing shatters into a million pieces. And it's because of this, this change in relativistic mass that we both are able to perceive the exact same shattering of a pot. Right. Okay. Um, so then let's actually t look at the formula itself. So let's break it down bit by bit. So let's start with the E. So what's E? Energy. 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 As measured. It's the ability of something to do work if you rest enough of the bits out of it. And typically it's measured in what? Joules? Joules. Megajoules. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> calories. in this case. Calories. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, e and, and then that's equal. And then M? Mass. And that's the mass in kilograms, grams. Yeah. Okay. Uh, C. Speed of light. Kilometers and, per second. Yeah. Or and, meters per second, depending on what you decide to use. And so then, the normal units are meters per second, mass in kilograms, energy in joules. And then you square the speed of light. And that's where it gets ridiculous. Yes. 
right? It's the speed of light is already, what, 300,000 meters per second. And then you yeah. square that number, right? And you get, well, you know, whatever. Well, it's, it's 300 million meters per second. Yeah, 300,000 300, 300, yeah. kilometers per yes. second. Yeah. So you take 300 million meters per second, square the sucker, and yeah, that, that's a large number. Yeah. But what's neat about this is if you turn the equation around and you look at it as a ratio instead, the energy tied up in an object divided by its mass is always equal to the speed of light squared. And that's just kind of cool. But the but I mean, when you think about, you know, for example, I've got here a, you know, an, a nice little iron meteorite. Um, hey, I've got one of those too. <laughs> I know. We all do. We all do. <laughs> is this a fill plate? Hey, this meteorite? is this is a fill plate thing. Yeah. We have fill plate meteorites. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Fill plate. Uh, if if he really likes you, we'll give you an iron meteorite. And so you know, like maybe I forget. It's about uh, forty grams or so. But I mean, there is enough energy to power a city in this piece of metal for, for a brief period yeah. of time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a phenomenal amount of energy that's locked up yeah. in all the matter around us. In fact, it's as if everything around us is just, you know, bombs waiting frozen to go energy. off. Frozen energy? you know, bombs. But the trick is unlocking that energy. That's the, that's the hard part. So, so let's go back to Einstein then. So, so, I mean, you already kind of led into it, right? Which is the relativity mm-hmm. concept. So, so how did Einstein really come up with this idea? Well, so what's interesting is, is there was initially no E equals MC squared in his paper. It was just kind of this sentence off to the side that, um, according to the translation of the German that I stole ruthlessly from Wikipedia, it said, if a body gives off the energy L in the form of radiation, its mass diminishes by L over V squared. And, And so... This has to do with with just how the momentum is affected in the process. Um, it has to do with the conservation of of kinetic energy tying into everything, and and it was only later that Max Planck was the one who wrote that the mass initially in a system is equal to the energy initially in a system divided by c squared and it's very important that you think of this in terms of mass and not matter because because mass and matter aren't really interchangeable matter is frozen energy but when you have something potato for instance potato is everyone's favorite example that that potato is made up of a certain amount of particles and those particles each have they're, they're matter. They're tied to the Higgs boson. They have a mass because of that. Um, but, but the amount of matter in it is a specific thing. And the amount of mass is, is different. And it, it's hard to sort that out because you can pull apart an atom. And depending on what it was when you started, you still have the same bits, but the energy of the bits have changed. And the mass energy is conserved and and the matter is is something different and you can actually if you take a bunch of energy you can turn it into matter but the mass energy is conserved but how did this even occur to him right i mean it's just he like, was a genius well and i understand that and i guess but i mean you mentioned this before right that he was thinking about about the implications of mass moving at relativistic speeds that that it being equivalent to energy had to be the outcome, right? It it falls out of the equations naturally. That that's one of the disturbing things when you're asked to do all these homework problems in in general relativity and special relativity is is this is one of those things that when you start looking at 
Um, how does momentum change as, as an object accelerates and you take into account relativistic corrections? How does the time when you start looking at all of these different things it just falls out naturally that you have this e over m equals c squared and that's how it falls out naturally it doesn't fall out as e equals mc squared it falls out as the speed of light squared just happens to boil down to energy divided by mass and so back when when einstein first first uh, proposed this this equation now you mentioned that max planck had sort of refined it did einstein come mm -hmm. back around and give it its final form Einstein did return to the topic. He did write e equals mc squared in the title of one of his articles. But by the time he got around to doing it, it was already generally being used. That's one of the great things about science is, while it may take us a while to decide how we're going to generally refer to things, what we're going to name things, once that relationship is discovered, everyone uses it. And and in in this case, he wrote down a brief sentence. It got out. It got written out. Everyone started using it, and he did get the credit because he was the first person to write it down. But him writing down e equals mc squared took a little bit longer to get to. And I guess again, back back when he first devised this, this was like the beginning of the nineteenth of the twentieth century, right? So nineteen twenties, and then he continued working on it through the two world wars. Right. Okay. And so, but I mean, they didn't really have a lot of practical applications and ways to even test this out so much well in astronomy we're starting to figure it out and what, what's kind of amazing is they did have to use all these sorts of things when they were starting to figure out the quantum mechanics of what drove stars when they were looking to figure out nuclear uh nucleosynthesis in stars this this is there there's a lot of ideas that this influences you need to have this energy idea this this linking between mass and energy to start to consider nuclear nucleosynthesis, nuclear reactions, nuclear bombs. It's it's the foundation for a lot of very scary and powerful, and I mean that literally, powerful ideas. Right. And so I guess you have the situation where the astronomers are like, we don't know how stars work. We think they burn because you can't well, get that much Eddington energy. Well, had figured it out, right? <laughs> but we were still working on the details. Right. And did some good work for us in, in the turn of the century. They're all compatriots of each other. Right. But you get a situation where where you finally have a mechanism. You can understand a little bit better what that mechanism is and, and what that relationship is. But but of course, I mean, I think that where a lot of people really think about e equals mc squared, they think about the the nuclear program in the uh, for World War II. Right. And and this is where when when you think of TNT, when you think of plastic explosives, when you think of most conventional weapons. You're looking at a chemical reaction that, um, when it takes place, gives off huge amounts of energy compared to, like, mixing hair dye, which re releases a small amount of energy. This is why they say tear the cap off of the hair dye before you mix it. Sorry if that was a little esoteric for all you men out there. You dye a lot of hair, Pamela, so we know I that's on your mind. I do dye a lot of hair, yeah. yes. So, so lots of chemical reactions give off energy. A lot of them also will... will take energy from their environment and the container the reaction's going, on, going in will feel cold. But if a reaction is exothermic enough, energetic enough, it will release energy that actually shatters the chemical reaction going on. It, it releases so much kinetic energy into the system that things blast apart. 
but this is a chemical reaction. It's it has to do with the binding energies of the chemicals involved, um, and that binding energy getting transformed into kinetic energy and thermal energy. With nuclear reactions, you're just taking the atoms apart and and taking the energy of the atoms and releasing that. And and that's a lot more powerful than just a standard chemical bond of whatever sort you're dealing with. And so now you've gone from the potato powering via chemical means a light for a science fair project to all the energy in the potato powering New York City. And so and you really are getting that 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 conversion of the of the mass into energy of the potato. The matter you, into energy. The matter into energy, yeah. Were you to actually blow up that that potato at a at a nuclear level. Right. And luckily potatoes resist this. But but the the other side of this that that I everyone thinks about the death, the destruction, the the mayhem and that you can do with with nuclear weapons and and they look at the evil side of the equation. But what's kind of awesome is is the the converting energy into matter side of the equation. You and I are just frozen energy. We don't think of it that way. But when our universe formed, the entire universe was was nothing but energy and it took the universe expanding and cooling for that energy to finally be able to freeze out into to matter, into electrons, protons, neutrons came in eventually. Uh, there was early nuclear reactions. And all of that was this transformation process of energy into matter. And, and today in our quest to try and understand the particle physics world, where we're taking particles, electrons, protons, colliding them at high velocities inside of various types of, of accelerators, depending on what we're looking for. And it's in the energy of that collision that we look for the particles that come out of the energy, the kinetic energy that's transformed into something that we may not have realized existed before. And so what is the process? I mean, we talk about about turning energy into matter and matter into energy. What is the process to actually turn, uh, say, energy into matter, for example? How can science do it now? Well, it, it's a matter of, of overcoming the forces in the center of, of the nuclei. Um, normally, you have protons and, protons and neutrons in the center of the atom that, that are held together with gluons because we are boring in how we name the, the things that hold our atoms together. But at the same time, they are repelling each other. This, this is um, the, the strange dichotomy that, that causes atoms to get more and more unstable as they get larger and larger. And, and eventually, when an atom gets too large, it, it's unstable. It splits into something more stable. Now, if you're able to take and squish those particles together even more, eventually you overcome their ability to, to be stable and, and separate from one another. And in that moment of, of being crushed, um, they're, they're forced to become energy. So you're overcoming the nuclear forces inside the atom. Right. And so you've got a... And, and like, how practically do they do this, say, in a nuclear reactor? Well, in a nuclear reactor, they don't bother with the full atom. They strip it out to its simplest pieces. So you take two protons. Um, you collide the two protons with so much um, 
force that that in the moments they come together, the ability of of the protons to repel one another is overcome by the fact that they're already flying together. That force of repelling doesn't have the time to to slow the the interaction enough. And as they come together, they end up getting converted into pure energy as they smash and they can no longer exist as protons. And so, you know, and it's, again, of you know, almost the most efficient way to do this. I mean, the most efficient way is the matter-antimatter. But you have to have already built your antimatter in the first place, right? Which is complicated. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that there's, there's any uh, more or less efficiency in it. They're just different. So in both cases, you're releasing energy. And, and it's eventually freezing out as particles. But, but yeah, creating antimatter is a bear. And, and they're just different. <laughs> and so, and then let's go, let's go the other way, right? Let's go from, from matter into energy. Well, this, this is one of those neat parts where if you have a pile of energy hanging around, it will naturally collapse into a particle and antiparticle. Um, that that have conserved momentum and fly off in opposite directions, and this is this is something that's going on all the time. There's reactions ongoing on a regular basis where where we have, um, for instance, uh, beta decay and anti beta decay processes where neutrons break down into a proton and electron and anti electron neutrino, uh, conserving the momentum, conserving the charge, conserving all the little bits. There's all these conservation rules that we have to pay attention to. And and one of the things people don't really seem to acknowledge is there's antiparticles everywhere. They're generally anti-neutrinos, but they're everywhere. And and a little bit of antimatter is not going to hurt you. A little bit of anti, right? Well, don't, they use they use it for medicine, right? They they took a little they they drop a little bit of antimatter in your body and and watch as it explodes inside well, of you. No, they usually take a little bit of normal radioactive matter that, as it undergoes radioactive decays, does release beta particles. And well, I thought there was a and, there was a form of of it that where they they have uh, was it positronic emission technology anyway um but but yeah so i mean the, the point is that that i mean scientists are using antimatter in their sort of daily yeah. work these days and, so and not, we're not blowing up the planet it's really not a concern antimatter exists we're not really sure why regular matter is the dominant in the universe folks are working on it but but the reality is antimatter is everywhere it's just the minority form of matter don't but, hate on the antimatter but but there are free floating antiparticles every now and then hitting your body and detonating. I think detonating is probably too strong a word. In Annihil general, Annihil the, annihilating, right? That's the word, annihilating. <laughs> so so in in general, the the anti neutrinos that are passing through your body. Um, they don't want to interact with anything. Right. They don't want to do you any harm. They are the most antisocial of particles. And, and so the probabilities that, that anything bad is going to happen, the probabilities that we can even detect these suckers when we try is very low. So, so we don't need to be worried. And yeah, positrons happen too. They can do damage. This is why one should avoid radiation. But what's a few nucleotides among friends? So what were the sort of, uh, I guess, the moral implications of uh, of this equation? I know that it caused Einstein quite a lot of 
I don't know, he was quite sad, I think, when he started to realize what the implications of this technology or what of this equation were going to be used for yeah. in, in terms of great destruction, right? Well, it, I mean, that, that's, that's the problem, that science can be used for good and it can be used for evil, and morality doesn't often keep up with technology. And there's always the question of, uh, well, dominance, and, and humans like to be dominant over one another. And here he was working to understand all the science that would eventually lead to so many positives. GPS, we have GPS because we have relativity. Um, understanding the formation of our universe is grounded in understanding relativity. But the other side of that was realizing, well, exactly how fusion and fission can occur, realizing how to form hydrogen bombs and how to form nuclear weapons from plutonium and uranium, depending on your methods. And, And it was this realization that we can cause runaway nuclear reactions if we trigger them correctly, that was the foundation of the Manhattan Project during World War II. And if it had only been used as a, look at how big a stick we have, now everyone be quiet and stop fighting, that would have been better. But the reality is we dropped two bombs on Japan. And I'm not going to argue the morality of that. I wasn't alive. I haven't studied it in detail. But the reality is we now live in a society where there is an ease of obtaining nuclear materials and it is possible to conceive of the crazy intelligent suicide terrorist who creates the weapon in a suitcase luckily the technologies are hard to to get a hold of they're extremely expensive to get a hold of but as miniaturization takes place as technology drops in price we have to be concerned of a future where the suicide bomber isn't carrying TNT or plastic explosives. The suicide bomber is carrying a dirty weapon. And that's a terrifying future. And we can only hope to try and avoid it. Yeah, I mean, you can just imagine what they must have been wrestling with as they started to realize the implications of this, of the math, of the physics that they were uncovering on, that on the one hand, it was clearly possible to use this for great you know, power plants and reactors and you could power ships and cities with this. And they but didn't really understand. The, I mean, they did, yeah, of course. But then they didn't understand the waste issues and all that kind of stuff at, at that point. But they could see that it would be used for great good. And then on the other hand, you you detonate these things and, and then you're using them for great evil. And and how do you communicate this to to the politicians because at the end of the day it's just nature right it's just reality says this all works and and it's this horrible trade-off i i'm a strong advocate of of safe nuclear energy the problem is that what is right and what is safe and what is good is often destroyed in the face of what is cheap and how do we make the most money and, and because humans aren't perfect, there's always going to be that person who, who looks at the trade-off of probabilities. The If we don't spend this $100,000, there is a fractional increase in potential hazard. If it, And those sorts of decisions, the, the decision not to spend the money for reprocessing, all of these decisions add up to a society that's not ready to be fully responsible for nuclear energy. And, and we live on a geologically unstable world. And so that requires even further expenditures 
and further risk. And and this is something that Japan is struggling with greatly right now. It's a small nation. It's it's one of the most in, environment, environmentally conscious nations in the world. They even tell you how to correctly recycle lipstick. They have a special special box just for the <laughs> lipstick. Yeah, it's 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 really something to be be profoundly proud of. But at the same time, they're such a small nation. They need nuclear energy, but they're a geologically unstable nation, and they're a technologically driven, high-energy demand nation. And now they're trying to struggle. How do we balance the geological instability with the desire to not use coal or other chemical fuels that increase the carbon load on our atmosphere? And and this is is a, we have the technology, we don't have the money, do we have the understanding? And it's trying to balance all of these different things. And it, it always reminds me of Dante, who, who just to bring in like things from left field, he said the root of sin is not understanding the consequences of our actions. And and you have to wonder if, if, if the root of doing wrong to our planet is, is buried in not understanding all the scientific implications of our work. Yeah, it's it's amazing that we're still dealing with the implications of of this discovery. And yeah. I think and I think, yeah. you know, when when you say equals MC squared, that 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 is just a short form to, to sort of unleash this whole complex constellation of ideas all at the same time that that it's about death and it's about World War II and it's about the power and risks and Fukushima and and all these things all at the same time and and but it's, it's also about life it's, yeah. it's about stars it's about yeah. the origins of the Big Bang and it's that dichotomy that as scientists we always have to be concerned what is it that we're discovering yeah and yeah. and variable stars are a nice safe place to work <laughs> Well, I think that was great. Well, thank you very much, Pamela, and we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next week. My pleasure, Fraser. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info@astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.